Hello and welcome. This is 21. Episode 10.1 The Origin of a Fancy Tomb You and your party begin making final preparations for your journey from Persepolis to Halicarnassus. The year is 350 BC. You have been dispatched to the new capital of the vassal kingdom of Kyra. This small kingdom in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, has pledged allegiance to the mighty Persian Empire, but are pretty much left to do their own thing. But once a year, someone from the royal Persian court travels to Halicarnassus just to check on how things are going with this vassal kingdom. King Artaxerxes III has decreed that this year, you have to make the cross-empire journey and report back to him. There have been some rumors coming out of the West recently about some fantastic Greek structure built there. While you're not opposed to the Greeks, you are well aware of their growing power and influence. I mean, they did defeat a Persian invasion twice in the span of about 10 years. So even though you live in Persepolis in modern-day Iran, you are still concerned about them just a little bit. But you're hoping that a trip to Halicarnassus will not only ease Persian minds, but perhaps remind those Greeks about where the real power lies in the world. It is a long trip from Persepolis to Halicarnassus. You are literally traveling from one side of the Persian Empire to the other. Halicarnassus is on the Mediterranean Sea on the west coast of Anatolia. It will take weeks if not months, to get there. To ensure your safety on your travels, the king has ordered that a small group of the most ferocious fighting unit in the world travel with you. Known as the Immortals, these elite Persian soldiers were feared across Mesopotamia. You do feel safe traveling with them. The first stage of the travel is decent enough. Fresh horses from the palace stables and the immortals means you get priority status on all the Persian roads. And seeing that it is a relatively small band that is traveling, you are able to travel fairly light. You carry papers from the King Artaxerxes III, dictating that wherever you stop, the people there must feed you and bed you. It's not a bad gig. At least you don't have to pay all these travel expenses out of your own pocket. Once you hit the Euphrates River, though, the travel eases up. River travel is so much smoother, faster, and easier than land travel, no matter what horses you have. Plus, this area is more hot and dry than your native Persia. This once was the home of the Babylonians and Assyrians. And it's not only hot and dry, but it's flat. You wonder why anyone would want to build a home here. After about another week of traveling upriver, you disembark for the relatively short journey to the ancient city of Adana. Adana is located on the eastern coast of Anatolia, and from there, you catch a ship that will take you along the coast to the other side of Anatolia, and to Halicarnassus. You've never been on the open sea before, so you're not sure what to expect. All you know is you've been traveling for almost a month, and you already want to go home. But the king needs this report, so best get there and get this done as quickly as possible. But the sea appears to have other plans. 
the winds are not favorable and a few storms kick up, forcing your ship to constantly have to dock in small cities along the coast. Here in these small coastal towns, a decree from the Persian king is received less favorably than it was closer to the heart of the empire. But eventually, you and your immortal guard see Halicarnassus on the horizon. Finally, you think to yourself, a week or so here, and then a long journey home. And hopefully King Artaxerxes III won't ask you to do this trip again next year. As you disembark in a sparkling, apparently new harbor, you spot something. Up on a hill, overlooking the city. It's a massive white building, almost sparkling in the sunlight. It almost seems to be floating on the clouds. You turn to ask a local what it is, but realize they won't understand you. Around here, everybody's speaking Greek, and you only know Persian. You need to find the Persian embassy there to find somebody who can tell you what this building is. But you can't help yourself. You're almost inexplicably drawn towards this magnificent buildings. The immortals with you remind you as to which direction the embassy is. But without even batting an eye, you say to them, You go on ahead, I'll catch up and start walking towards the building. Even though you've never been to Halicarnassus before, finding your way to this building is easy. It's almost as if the roads have been adjusted, making travel to whatever this is a lot simpler. And you can't seem to take your eyes off it. As you work your way closer to the building, you begin to see more details come into focus. There are reliefs decorating the entire thing, and there is a big statue of a chariot on top. After what seems like an eternity, you finally enter a large courtyard overlooking Halicarnassus. And there in front of you is a gleaming white building, rectangular in shape, but intimately carved. You step closer, and you are amazed at the detail you can see. Suddenly, as you lean in closer to inspect the reliefs, you hear a voice behind you. It's amazing, isn't it? You stand up straight. You aren't sure which has surprised you more. The fact that someone is speaking to you, clearly an outsider, or that you understood what they were saying. You turn around and see another Persian standing behind you. They clearly must be from the embassy, because they're not one of the immortals. They look up at the building and say, Can you believe... This is all just a tomb? What you are looking at is the tenth wonder of the ancient world, and one of the original seven, the mausoleum of Mausolos at Halicarnassus. Yes, that's a mouthful, and I don't think I've spelled it right the entire time that I've been studying ancient history or writing this episode. But that's what autocorrect is for, I guess. But anyways, before we go into the details of the wonder... As always, context first. First off, where exactly is Halicarnassus? I have some maps up on the website showing you where it is, but it's located on the very southwest corner of modern-day Turkey. It was the capital city of the small vassal kingdom of Kyra. Kyra, although a province of the Persian Empire, acted almost autonomously due to the great distance that we have just mentioned. Kyra was ruled by King Mausolos. 
King Mausolus came to power in 377 BC and began to expand the influence and power of Halicarnassus. He married his sister Artemisia, which, as we have already learned on this show, siblings, especially power siblings marrying each other, was not uncommon in the ancient world. Her name, though, was a nod to the Greek goddess who was sort of big in that area, Artemis. And we'll be learning a whole lot more about Artemis in a future episode. Now, for those of you who know your Greek mythology, Artemis was the Greek goddess of wild animals, hunting, the moon, and oddly enough, chastity. The ancient peoples liked to have their gods be the gods of bizarre connections that don't make a whole lot of sense to us in the modern world. But to them, it must have made sense. The Greek influence in the city of Halicarnassus did not just stop with names. King Mausolus even attempted to rule his city with a Greek-like democracy, which was highly unusual in the ancient world. Before the conquest of Alexander the Great, the idea of a Greek-style government was not just rare, but seen as weak. To the people of the ancient world, not having a powerful or strong king or emperor was seen as weak. It was seen as an opening for chaos, with no single rule that only courted trouble. But this was mostly a misconception, or propaganda depending on your point of view. Mostly it was because the ruling classes of ancient Mesopotamian kingdoms would have tried to downplay the Greek democratic style of government as much as possible in order to maintain their status, power, and wealth in society. But what also made the government about Kyra even more bizarre was the fact that the queens carried an awful lot of power, almost as much as the kings. Contrary to popular belief, and I'm not entirely sure why this is the misconception, but in just about every ancient kingdom, empire, or society, there were women who held great power, influence, and importance. Very few societies were strictly patriarchal. Now, I don't say this to mean that women had the same rights as men, but just because that you were born a woman in the ancient world did not mean that your life was miserable. Certainly not. And it wasn't unheard of for, when the king of Kyra died, that his queen would rule until she died, before a new king would be crowned. So King Mausolus is ruling the vassal Kyra kingdom for the Persian Empire, but he ruled it with a Greek-style democracy. He was married to his sister, who wielded almost as much power as he did himself. Both of them were lovers of Greek culture, language, and art, and together they expanded the influence of Halicarnassus and the Kyra kingdom. Together, they were able to rule the entire southwest coast of Anatolia, and even controlled the island of Rhodes. This is the same island of Rhodes upon which the Colossus would be built on about a hundred years later. With Rhodes and the southern Anatolian cities under their control, Mausolus and Artemisia enriched the kingdom of Kyra by tapping into the main trade routes along Anatolia. This enabled them to fund many work projects, such as temples, a grand palace for themselves, a theater, and a brand new harbor. But the main thing that this increase in revenue funded 
was what has been described as one of the most lavish personal building projects ever seen in the ancient world. And this was certainly true. King Mausolos ruled for 24 years, from 377 to 353 BC. He and Queen Artemisia were in the middle of their building spree when he died. This leads us to believe that he died rather suddenly, as a number of public work projects were unfinished at the time of his death. His wife, grief-stricken by his death, ordered a tomb built for her husband. This would be one of the finest tombs in the ancient world, and it would leave such a lasting impression on society that we have gotten our term mausoleum, which is what we call any above-ground tomb today, from the tomb for King Mausolos. Almost immediately after the king's death, work began on his tomb. A hilltop overlooking the city was chosen as the spot for this tomb. This way, the great king of the Kyra people could overlook his beloved city forever. For the design of this tomb, Queen Artemisia would only settle for the best. In keeping with the rest of the city and what fascinated her and her husband, she hired two Greek architects to design this tomb, Pythios and Satyros. Their design would be one of special magnificence. They designed a large courtyard with the tomb in the middle. This courtyard measured 242 and a half meters, about 800 feet, by 105 meters, about 350 feet. At the center of this courtyard was a stone platform. On this platform, the mausoleum would be built. The rest of the courtyard was filled with flowers, fountains, and other garden accessories. But it was clearly the tomb that would be the centerpiece. One of the interesting things to note about the Mausoleum of Mausolos is its foundation. This is one of the few wonders on this list that we know what the foundations were. Thanks to some modern archaeology, we know that the foundation of the tomb was cut into the rock upon which the tomb was set. Now this is interesting because the ancient peoples didn't have dynamite or jackhammers or anything else to break up the rock so they could build something there. And yet, the builders of the mausoleum cut a rectangular hole in the stone measuring 2.4 to 2.7 meters, about 8 or 9 feet deep, by 33 by 39 meters, 107 feet by 127 feet, wide and long respectively. On this foundation, the builders constructed an amazing basement. This basement was stepped, leading above ground. Stepped means that it had a wide base, and it had a number of levels that got smaller as it went up. Not that much smaller, the decrease in size was gradual. But this type of stepping added significance to whatever was mounted upon it. It signified that no matter what direction you came to this site, the structure mounted on it was the centerpiece, and you had to climb some stairs to get to it. It demanded respect and attention. As for the dimensions of the mausoleum itself, we still have a few accounts written by ancient historians that still survive for us today. One particular account was written by the Roman historian Pliny the Elder. 
and it's very descriptive. Now we can't say for sure if he went and visited the mausoleum himself, but I'd say there's a fairly significant chance that he did. The mausoleum stood for more than a thousand years, and was thus obviously still standing when Pliny was alive in the first century AD. He described the mausoleum of Mausolos as follows. The circumference of the building is, in all, 440 classical feet, or 140 meters, and the breadth from north to south, 63 feet, or 20 meters, the two fronts not being so wide in extent. It is 25 cubits in height, 11.43 meters, or about 40 feet, and is surrounded with 36 columns. The outer circumference being known as the Teron. Above the Teron, there is a pyramid erected, equal in height to the building below, and formed of 24 steps, which gradually taper upward toward the summit. A platform crowned with the representation of a four-horse-drawn chariot by Pythes. This addition makes the total height of the work 140 feet, or 45 meters. Now compared to a lot of the other wonders on this list, 140 feet really isn't that tall. I mean, if we're just going by size, then the Mausoleum of Mausolos shouldn't have even been on the original seven wonders of the ancient world. Never mind this list. But as we saw with the terracotta army and the temple to Jehovah at Jerusalem, there is more than one way for a structure to become a wonder. And in the case of the Mausoleum of Mausolos, it was more the decorative work done rather than its size which elevates it to the class of wonder. Queen Artemisia decreed that this mausoleum be adorned in men and horses carved as if they were real in the fine marble. Even though this was the expectation going in, I find it hard to believe that the finished product was what anyone could have imagined it would have been. For the exquisite carvings, Queen Artemisia once again turned to Greek artists. This time, she hired four master sculptors to supervise one side each of the mausoleum. She hired Leochares, Bryaxis, Scopas of Paros, and Timotheus. Each one of these men was more than capable of having overseen the whole project, but each was only responsible for one side of the mausoleum. Their job was to carve the most beautiful, exquisite, lifelike structures into the mausoleum that they could. Perhaps Queen Artemisia hired four different sculptors so there would be competition amongst them to see whose side would be the greatest. If only one sculptor had been hired, Perhaps the quality of the carvings would not have been as good. But by hiring multiple experts to do this job, she ensured that the best was done by each of them. And boy, did that move pay off. But we will examine their work next week. Their carvings were so amazing and beautiful that I want to make sure that we take the time to examine them properly. And seeing as we're getting a little low on time this week, I think we'll push the decorations of the Mausoleum of Mausolos till next week. This way, y'all have a week to be excited about it. So next week we will not only look at the decor, but we will also do a complete picture as to what the finished mausoleum would have looked like. Don't worry, there are some pictures up on the website right now 
if you want to check them out before next week. But it'll be even more impressive with the detailed description of the carvings we will do next week. We will also look at what crowned the top of this tomb. The chariot statue which decorated the top was perhaps the most exquisite part of the entire mausoleum. We will also look at the history of the mausoleum and how, similarly to the Great Lighthouse and the Colossus, stones which were used in its construction are still there today, just part of a more modern building. Mm -hmm.